Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and that's on page 992 in the Pew Bible if you don't have your own copy of Scripture. So in some ways, this is a sermon in two parts. And uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, verses uh, 13 through 42 together this morning. And then we're going to be looking at 42 through 52 uh, next week. This is all in the chapter of Acts chapter 13. And the reason I say it's in two parts is a lot of times we can look at the latter half and, and we can see that God indeed is on a mission to bring the Gentiles in. In fact, that's what the, the last half of the chapter is about. God going into the nations through the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and uh, being a light for the Gentiles as a fulfillment of the prophets. And indeed, Paul was convinced that God created the entire world. Um, I don't know if that's a really a big news flash, but from that very fact that God created the entire world stems the fact that He owns all things in the world, Jew and Gentile. And God's people had forgotten that. God's people had forgotten that God was the God of both Jew and Gentile. They had thought, hey, God is our God. And the Gentiles are, are unclean and evil and wicked and we don't want to have anything to do with them. God owns everything in the world and He owns every creature and every human being in the world. And Paul was convinced of that. And so we'll see that next week as it relates to the mission going out to the Gentiles. But today, we're going to be looking at Paul in a synagogue speaking and preaching to the Jews. Because I think it's just as important because we can hear the call for international mission, right? To go out into the land of the Gentiles and we can say, yes, I need to do that. But I think what we can oftentimes miss is what motivated Paul to do that. He wasn't guilt-tripped into going to the Gentiles. He didn't say, oh, I, God said I had to go do this and I want Jesus to come back so i got to go serve overseas. No, he was motivated by something in his heart and in his gut that he couldn't shake. And that's what we're going to be looking at today because Paul knew that the call for Adam and Eve all the way back to the garden was a call to tend and keep that garden, but it wasn't just meant to be contained, but that it was meant to expand and to spread throughout the entire earth. And sure, there would be thistles and thorns that would infest the ground, but they were called to till. They were called to work. They were called to cultivate, continue to spread out from that. And anyone who is into horticulture knows that a garden just doesn't happen. And a garden just doesn't sprout up out of nowhere. There's somebody that has tilled the ground, that has prepared it, that has sown seed, that has watered it, that has cared for it, that has pruned the different plants. There are weeds that infiltrate there's pruning that needs to happen so that the plants in the garden can actually bear the fruit that they were intended to provide. And throughout the book of Acts, the good news of redemption starts in Jerusalem and then we see this geographical expansion happening throughout the book of Acts, right? That you will be my witnesses in where? Here in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then the uttermost parts of the world. That's, that's what Luke is showing us in the book of Acts, is that what God said would happen 
is happening. Right? But that doesn't mean that, it, that you know, everybody's just going to say, hey, yeah, here, have, have your way. Let's go ahead and preach the gospel and there's not going to be any, any opposition. There has to be opposition when there is territory to be taken in the name of God because the God of this world, as we heard last week, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so it's not just going to happen, but God's people have to lay down their lives and they have to push with sweat, blood, and tears into the uttermost parts of the earth. And you see that, that as there's expansion throughout the book of Acts, even up here till chapter 13, if you spend time this afternoon, I encourage you to just read the first 13, book, uh, 13 chapters in your own time after you have lunch today. But you see opposition happening as this word expands, as the good news goes out. See, you got fighting that's happening from within, right? In Acts chapter 6, you see that there's infighting between Jews and Gentiles in the church, and so there has to be a remedy of deacons given, right? And then you see opposition from the religious elite, the ones who were supposed to know that God was going to make good on His promises, the ones who had memorized Isaiah and knew that He was going to be sending a light to the Gentiles. Those religious elite were providing opposition to God's people. And what do we see happen in chapter 9 of Acts is that Saul, the elite of the religious elite, is miraculously converted. And then you even see in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 10, that Rome is opposing God's people from expansion. But then God miraculously saves a centurion. God's Word will not be contained, but God's Word has to be accompanied by a preaching of that Word. A self-sacrificing preaching. A preaching that is motivated by something from within because I promise you, people are not just going to say, yeah, please tell us more. Like This is a, a great story. You see that sometimes in the book of Acts. But the lion's share of what happens when God's people are obedient to extending out beyond the borders, that there will always be opposition. There will always be opposition. And so one thing that's clear in the book of Acts that we need to be aware of is that the darkness will not go away lightly. The darkness just doesn't dissipate. There have to be emissaries and missionaries and people who are willing to be martyred for their faith for the sake of others. And we see that throughout the biblical story. In fact, we heard from Numbers 27, and what happens in Numbers 27 is not divorced from God's story that we read right here in Acts 13. Because in Numbers 27, what does God tell Moses? He says, go up and see this promised land. And I'm going to appoint for myself Joshua. And Joshua is going to take this promised land away from the bloodthirsty Canaanites. That, that is what God's people are called to do, is to go out and to know that they are going to die. The grand sweep of redemption continues on until Revelation chapter 7. right? And what did we hear just a moment ago from Revelation 7? After this I looked, the Apostle says to us, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. But for that to happen, God's people have to go out and preach the Gospel. 
They have to go out into territory that is uncomfortable. They have to go into the hard places and till the soil. We don't just show up and like, wow, there's a garden here. I didn't know that there was a garden. No, God's people are called to cut away thistles and thorns and move and expand out to know and to move forward to the day when the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And we get to be a part of that. Maybe. Maybe. Because we see throughout Scripture that God has a great passion for His name and for His glory to not be profaned in the nations, but to be made great throughout the entire cosmos. That's what God is on a mission to do. Like unbridled horses. I don't know if you got to see the the Kentucky Derby yesterday. It was fascinating. And I will not riff on that right now, but it... Amazing. You need to watch it. Just, just the derby. Just that part. Like an unbridled horse, God Himself is on the move. Just always breathtaking to see these thoroughbreds moving with, with passion for the finish line, right? And sometimes they need to be kicked, but God is not being whipped into this. He is, he is moving constantly. That's the story in the book of Acts. That's the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that God is on the move because he, he intends for the entire cosmos to be filled with His glory. And He won't stop. He can't stop. I'm not going to rap. But He won't stop until it's done. He knows that people dwelling in darkness are groping around, looking for meaning in their life. And He's not content with that being the case because He created every person in His image. And He wants them to know Him. And to love Him. And they will not know until light shines in the darkness to light their way. There is no hope for those who don't yet know Christ if someone does not go and tell them. God's great love fuels His passion for His name. God's heart is a missionary heart. It's where we get the term missio, to be sent out, to be going to the corners of the earth. And God's heart is a missionary heart. And we oftentimes forget that when the mortgage bill comes, when there are children to be tended to, when there are jobs to be checked in on. We can oftentimes get distracted from what our great calling as God's people is. It's not in addition to, but it is to infiltrate every aspect of our lives. That when you go to work, that you are a missio. You are sent out by God into your workplace. Whether you work for the school system, whether you work for any private organization, wherever you go to work, that is your being sent out by God where you're at. Not in addition to. It's not I do this and then I go do a missionary work. No. In the midst of your being and going, God says you are already going and as you're going, know what your calling is as God's people. See, God is constantly on the move until the cosmos shouts forth His glory. The question we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, Will you join Him? God is doing this already. Will you join Him? God will be victorious. This is where all of history is moving towards that day. And the question is, is 
Are you going to join Him? Will you be a part of that great story? Or will you and I be contented with simply paying bills? Those have to be paid. Don't, don't pay your uh, water bill, right? Pay your electric bill. Pay these things. But don't be contented with that's the sum and substance of your being. It's not just simply paying bills and raising well-balanced kids and not getting into trouble. <laughs> and so we see in our text this morning from Acts chapter 13, both the preaching of the Gospel, as I've already mentioned, but the posture of the disciple. And those are the two points that I have for our message today. And we're going to start with the posture of the disciple first. Because I think that that fuels what we see later on in the text. And in fact, I'm just following the text itself. So, and so the answer to my complacency and my getting distracted, and the answer to your complacency and your getting distracted with many things, is that we have to be astounded anew by this gospel. What I just prayed a moment ago is that it wouldn't just like wash over us and be like, yeah, that's cool, yeah, so glad God saved me. But for that to be the fodder that fuels this passion for God's name, to be sent out throughout the nations, and then we have to repent. And that's the title of the message, is be astounded and repent, but we're going to look at it in two parts. The posture of the disciple and the preaching of the gospel. And so let's look at verses 13 through 16 of Acts chapter 13. Again, this is our first point, the posture of the disciple. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand and said, we're going to stop there. <laughs> the posture of the disciples. So Paul is on the move. He himself is aligned with God's missionary heart, God's moving heart, right? You see this, that he and his companions are on the move. They set sail from Paphos. Paphos is in, is in um, where did I say, southwest Cyprus. Okay, And so then they travel north across the Mediterranean Sea 175 miles. And they come there and then they go another 100 miles north in Antioch and Pisidia. They are moving and they are expanding and they are spreading out until they come to a synagogue. And something I didn't even notice until this morning. This, this little phrase, and it could get lost on us. In verse 13 the last, last part of that. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. A lot of times when God's people are on the move, and this, I've seen this in my own heart. I, 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 I shared this with um, the deacons and directors. We had a meeting yesterday uh, morning. And I said, my tendency, and I don't know if this is your tendency, but my tendency is to kind of corral everybody because like, I love people a lot. And what I want a lot of times it's like, oh, I that's awesome. You, you come and be a part of our church and we're going to build heaven here on earth and nobody has to go anywhere. You get all of your needs met right here. It's going to be awesome. 
But that's not the way it works until heaven. A lot of times we want it so much that we wring our hands and say, why can't this be this way? Sometimes John has to leave and go to Jerusalem to go do his work. And instead of, I'm sure there was weeping that was going on. I'm sure that they were sad. But God calls His people to be on the move. It's a beautiful thing to consider is that their posture was so in line with God's heart that yes, they were sad that they wouldn't get to see their brother John again. But they realized that the call was so much bigger than their comfort. Than them just having a nice, big, happy family. Like they knew that John had to go do his work in Jerusalem. Paul and Silas and Barnabas and all these other missions, they had to go do their work as well. And they were so enamored with this big vision of what God was doing that they said, we'll see you on the other side. And that's what God is calling His people to reclaim because they, to, to, to be so enamored with God's glory that all of these things begin to fade away and we get more and more convinced that God's glory is worth it, is worth the sacrifice, is worth saying goodbye for a time. So the question then we look at with this posture of the disciple is why in verses 15 and 16, why would Paul go to the synagogue? Why wouldn't he just kind of go immediately to the Gentiles? Convinced because he knew that God had not abandoned Israel but was being patient with them and trying to show them the light in the law and the prophets that were just read. He's saying, you, you have this law and the prophets, and if you will see it, you can see that Jesus is the, is the fulfillment of all this. He says, men of Israel, you who fear God. He's assuming that they love God. And he's saying, if you love God, then please listen to this. And so the question is, what would motivate someone? If we're looking at this posture, what would motivate someone to go do this hard work. Well, I think that Paul probably spent a lot of time meditating on his own conversion. And you see it throughout his letters. You see that he's constantly bringing attention to this fact that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. right? I, I was religious to the core. And God broke through. And he meditated on his own story. And I think that we would do well if we want the same kind of posture that Paul has is for us to meditate and reflect on our own story of how we came to know Jesus. A lot of times we can say, yeah, I did that when I was 13, and then when I was 14 and 15. Like, no, but don't forget what God did there. And that will motivate you to be more gracious towards other people. Because you'll begin to see, as I begin to see in my own life, is that I spent a lot of my time making sure that I was dotting my I's and crossing my T's and living a very comparatively speaking, righteous existence, and then I realized that I couldn't save myself, that I could not be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. See, I think many Christians believe they did something to commend themselves to God. I think that unless we remind ourselves of what God saved us from, we can fall into the trap of saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm all right pretty good. I wasn't that bad. I'm not that bad now. And we think that there might be something that we were able to put two and two together that that person over there is not able to do. Man, how can they not see these things? How can they not see that what they're doing is wrong? And this is going to kill them if they keep doing this. 
And we harbor something in our own hearts that thinks that we did something to commend ourselves, unfortunately. That we have the self-control. We have the discipline to make ourselves better. But I would encourage you as an application point throughout this week, remind yourself of when you came to that moment where you're like, okay, I can't do it on my own. And I, and I can't help but think that a lot of the rumblings that many of us are experiencing in our church, personally, is for God to shake the ground and to remind you that you don't have it together. That you can't save yourself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much self-control you have, no matter how much discipline you have, no matter how many good things you've done, and no matter how many T's you've crossed, and I's you've dotted, no matter how long you've been on the straight and narrow, you can't save yourself. Too often times, I think that we think we might, and we could. And I can't help but think that God wants to remind us anew that He saves sinners. He heals broken people. He draws near to those who are downcast, downtrodden, and weak, and hurting, and in pain. Not the righteous. Not those who are not in need of a doctor. And I can't help but thinking as Paul reflected on his own conversion, and what I'm encouraging all of us to do to reflect on our own conversion, that Paul remembers that just a few chapters before this, he was standing around in chapter 7. He was standing around giving approval to Stephen being stoned. And I can't help but he, that face keep flashing, kept flashing in his mind of Stephen whose face was like that of an angel looking up into heaven and, and seeing Jesus in the clouds, and how he would stand and he'd say, yes, stone him. Stone this blasphemer. And how many times that went through his mind that I stoned him. Not just him. We, that's just one story. But can you imagine Paul being so reminded that he too was a sinner? And that love that he saw in Stephen's face who reminded him of Jesus that said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think that that's what motivated Paul, quite frankly. Not some kind of outside compulsion, but some kind of inner drive. And this is why he's able to say, even, even in the face of everybody saying, Paul, you're an idiot. I can't believe you would ever believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Where he can say in Romans chapter 9, listen to these words. This is not the, this is, these are not the words of someone who's like, yeah, i got to do this because God, you know, God told me to. No, he says... I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. His posture was not a posture of us versus them. That was not Paul's posture. He was not like, okay, I'm, I don't like them. They're against me and I just got to go do this, right? And as we look at the culture around us, it's easy to think that they are hostile to me and the Gospel. And at one level, they are. Yes, the culture will not just roll over and say, hey, yeah, sure, tell us what we ought to do. <laughs> tell us to repent. That's a great... No, it's, that's not what the culture is going to do. At one level, yes, there is a battle going on between principalities and powers. 
And as another level though, we have to understand that people who don't know Christ are naive. Their eyes are darkened. There's a veil from them to be able to understand. And that should drive us to compassion as opposed to getting irritated that non-Christians act like non-Christians. That people who don't know God, how could they ever believe that? Because they don't know God. And a lot of times what we can do is we can just lump everybody in and not see them as individuals. And I think that's the answer going forward. And I'll, I'll share, I have a quote that I was going to share with you, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to share it. I'll share it in the weekly this week. But the call is for us to see people as individuals. Not as one big lump of, hey, they just want to take away my rights. They want to make my life difficult. No, they are naive. Have we forgotten what Jesus said on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them, this one and that one. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them as I am being crucified by these very people. Forgive them. And that's the heart that Paul had. Just imagine for a moment. Paul was able to speak of tenderness, not of people who were just trying to make his life difficult, not of hecklers in the audience. These folks were trying to not only arrest him, they were trying to kill him. And he was able to say, I am in great anguish for these folks because they don't know Jesus. What would motivate him other than seeing these folks as made in the image of their Creator and that God is on a mission of redeeming them knowing that he too was far from God and God opened up his eyes. The call of the Christian is quite literally to speak gracious truth and to lay down our lives for other people so that other people can become fully human reflecting their glory and purpose to their Maker. But most Christians aren't willing to because they aren't fully embracing their call to take up a cross, to suffer, to lay down their lives. Instead, we're worried about my rights being taken away. And There was another motivating force for Paul. Another motivating force was the preaching of the Gospel and reminding God's people that He was on a mission to redeem all peoples. And so that's what we see in the second point is the preaching of the Gospel. The preaching of the Gospel, verses 17-41. through uh, 41, And I'll just read that in its entirety here. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm He led them out of it And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. 
No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had, and when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead, and for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Why do you think Luke slows down here? Why doesn't as he's writing this down, why, why, why doesn't he just say, and Paul preached the good news? I wonder why. I wonder Because I think that what he's trying to get us to see is that this is God's fulfillment and that God's people have been called out and they're having trouble understanding. This, this message is taken to God's people to give them a chance to see all that has happened in Jerusalem was in concert with God's purposes from the beginning. He made them a great multitude in verse 17. He was patient with their hard hearts for 40 years in verse 18. He made good on His promise to give them Canaan in verse 19. But it was slow in coming about for 450 years in verse 20. Jesus came from the kingly line of David as a fulfillment in verse 23. And so I think the net effect of all this is that none of this story is disconnected from God's initial purposes for His people. And why is that important? Because I think at this moment right now that you're in earshot of the preaching of God's Word, that this moment right now is not either disconnected from God's purposes. Have you ever considered that? That what's happening in this moment right now is part of God's plan from the beginning. That the preaching of the Gospel, it, this is all part of that schema that we've seen from Re Revelation chapter 7. That you are given the opportunity even right now to be a part of that. And just as the people in the synagogue at that time were given the opportunity to be a part of what God was doing in their midst, you too are being the, given the opportunity on May the 8th, 2022, to be a part of what God has been doing since the beginning. Since Adam and Eve in the garden. To be a part of that question is, will you? 
Will you heed that call or will you be, as we'll see next week, will you be hard-hearted and say, yeah, but I've got all these other responsibilities. I have all these other things I have to tend to. Within the preaching to God's people is a warning to God's people. And I don't want this to get lost on us. I think Luke is slowing down to exhort you and me to not be like the religious leaders. Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets that were read every Sabbath, fulfilled those very same promises by condemning Him. Don't be like the religious leaders who harden their hearts. And then the preaching is tied to Scripture in verse 29, and then that promise is fulfilled to the fathers later on in 30 and thir- uh, 32 and 33. And the resurrection isn't some secret that happened behind closed doors, but it's something that these martyrs laid down their lives because they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus for many days, it says in verses 30 and 31. So the preaching of God's Word encourages us to come to Him, but it always is issued with a caution. It's always issued with, be careful, don't be like that. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about in your own hearing of these words. And what is, what is this, what, what is he quoting from? He's quoting from Habakkuk. Look at verse 41. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and, peri- and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so this is a good reminder to us that God is in our midst even right now. And the call is not to harden our hearts and not to say, okay, let me catalog that and learn that. Because I promise you this, that preaching is not just commentary on some past event. But the preaching of the Gospel is always new and fresh to say, God's people, will you respond in the way that God is calling you to respond in obedience and faith? Don't be like Habakkuk's people who heard and who hardened their heart. Don't have preconceived ideas of what God ought to do. But be open and be receptive to what God wants to do in your life right now. See, God's Word comforts us, but it also cautions us. It confronts us, and it also calls us into communion with Him if we'll let it. My challenge to all of us is to not harden our hearts is to have the same posture that Paul had so that we might be changed. And so that we might actually go and share the Gospel with those who don't know God. To treat people as made in the image of God who are groping about in the darkness and and don't know what their lives are made for unless someone tells them. That's the great gift and privilege that we have, Christian. is to go and tell people what Jesus has done for them, what Jesus did for me by opening up my eyes. And He can do that for anyone. He can do that for anyone. What I'd like to do in response to God's Word, I'd like to just take a few moments of just some silence. And for you to reckon with your Maker, to reckon with God, what is God calling you to do in light of this 
text, the posture of the disciple and the preaching of the gospel. So let's just take a few moments and then I'll go ahead and call the, the musicians up and we'll sing our song of response. But as they do that, let's just have some silence and if you're taking notes, write down what is God calling you to do this morning in light of His text? What person do you need to go to and talk to? What person do you need to start praying for that God would open their hearts? What is God calling you to do? Because He is, he is calling out. And the great question for each of us is, are we going to listen? Are we going to listen? Heavenly Father, I believe that You are moving in the midst of Your people and You are calling us to do something about it. And we pray, Father, that You would prick our hearts, that You would give us eyes to see the, the darkness that surrounds us and that we would be willing to go out and to be a light, indeed to lay down our lives so that we might see and share in the great joy of a lost sheep coming back into the fold. Of a coin that was lost and is found. and Of a son that is lost and is now redeemed. We pray that You would give us tender hearts to the movements of Your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.